even though sometimes people think like robots are coming and they are going to replace, we have a labor shortage. And the reason for this is because our world is getting more complicated. And to produce complicated stuff, you need more people being involved. You are listening to the Future Proof Operations Podcast. The manufacturing sector is evolving and the work that happens on the front line is the key to driving future readiness. On each episode, we bring you conversations with global leaders in industrial companies. Our goal is to discuss trends, stories and people in digital manufacturing and offer the latest insight into solutions. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources at operationsone.com. I'm your podcast host, Benjamin Brockman. This episode is brought to you by Operations One. Operations One is the leading platform to bring operations to a new level of excellence. By supporting frontline operations from planning to execution to analytics, companies benefit from an empowered workforce, increased operational excellence, and future proof operations. Visit operationsone.com for more information. Hi, Joachim. Welcome to the Future Proof Operations Podcast. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Joachim, great that you are on the podcast today. Could you give us a 60 seconds overview of who you are and what you are doing? Oh, yeah. Tough. <laughs> so, actually, I'm a tailor by heart. I started as a tailor in 1984, 38 years ago. And I worked a couple of years in bespoke couture. So, I really know how to make things because I was always interested in how to make things. And then I moved into the industry because I wanted to learn how to make things faster and better and on scale. I moved in uh, from that. I became a leader. I started to investigate in creativity in terms of organizational settings, creating organizations instead of products. My last role was being a, path, a managing director of 4,000 people in Izmir. And then I left corporate world. And now I am working as a mentor and consultant and do exactly that, like this creative organizational Uh, changes and shaping organizations towards digital transformations. That is in a nutshell what I do today. I'm a father of two kids, happily married, living in Germany. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks for that introduction. I think there are a lot of topics which we can discuss today. But beforehand, I would like to ask you about your opinion of Industry 4.0. Is it still a relevant topic for you? Well, yeah, Industry 4.0 is a relevant topic, but it is a little bit Oh, it's already in the shadow of Industry 5.0. And the reason for that is uh, simply because everyone talks about climate change. Everyone knows that things have to change now, which means like optimizing what we have with digital tools is, will not be enough anymore. But to be fair, uh, there are lots and lots of people still in 3.0 and let's say 3.5 maybe or whatsoever. So there's no way that you can bypass this part Intellectually, it's already in its ending. So Industry 5.0 sounds revenue for me. I think we have something to discuss today. Before we jump into that topic, I would like to get to know what you did when you have been a leader for 4,000 people, as you said. I know that you have been working for the clothing company Hugo Boss. What did you do exactly at Hugo Boss? So first up, I was never going to work for Hugo Boss when I was, uh, as I said, I started as a tailor and I wanted to open my own tailor shop, which meant like, okay, I will have maybe five to 10 employees and then have a tailor shop somewhere in Cologne and do suits. 
Now, when I started to work for Hugo Boss, I was fascinated by the combination of doing something fashionable, but in a way that a lot of people would like it. So not a niche fashion product, but something that is really accepted by many. And that attracted me to and made me work for Hugo Boss. And I was mainly working in product development areas, pattern making, pattern design, which has a lot to do with fit, like making things fit to the body and product development areas. And then also in when I went more and more into leading positions. And then I um, attended business school in, uh, in Switzerland. And that made me ultimately think like, I want to lead some, I want to lead people, you know, I want to lead an organization. And in 2015, then they asked me, can you go to Izmir, to the factory and lead it because they were actually looking for someone. And fortunately in 2014, I had attended a workshop about how to lead the factory of the future, which was a lot about smart factories and industry 4.0. And then I thought, okay, that is now, that's a lifetime chance. You know, I mean, you are intellectually prepared. You just had no space for this. Now they ask you to go to Izmir and you have all the people that you need to actually make this smart factory a reality. So that was basically how I started to, how I worked there. And you have been working as a plant manager, production manager, right? Exactly. So I was working there as a managing director, which means like when you're working as a managing director, it's not like a plant manager only. This is like a, having your own factory, basically your own organization. You have your own IT, your own HR, your own project managers. Even we had doctors and restaurants and whatever, cash machines and such. It was like a village with these 4,000 people. So you take care about producing goods in time, in quality and in cost. And at the same time, you care about the financials, the people are happy, that they want to work for you. So there are lots and lots of things that's a little bit different to what a plant manager would do, so to say. Okay. Before we go into the smartness of the factory, you talked about the smart factory. I would like to understand how a clothing factory is usually working. I think a lot of our listeners probably know how a car manufacturing factory can look like. We all know that Orange Robotics, there's already some automation going on. But Joachim, please take us on a journey. You go with us in a clothing factory today or probably some years ago. You have to decide how this is looking like. Yeah. So th think about when you look into historic old manufacturing videos of car making, like when Ford was making his Model T, something like that, pretty much of this, what you see in these old videos you see today in the apparel industry still, unfortunately, I must say, but it is like this. So there are areas when you start with the yarn and spinning and weaving that are highly automized today. So when you go into a fabric company nowadays, you will see hundreds and hundreds of machines and very little people caring about them. Totally automized, very loud, I must say. Spinning and weaving is very loud, but very few people involved because it is highly automized. Then from the fabric, it goes into the making, like really cutting and sewing and producing and pressing the garment and that still is highly manual. We are a people heavy industry. I mean, you will find factories where literally thousands of people are sitting on sewing machines in huge rooms, giant halls, so to say, typically in lines between 20 to 40 people in a line set up one by one, one after the other. And the product runs through these operations and stages and you find people sitting on sewing machines. This looks very much like 30, 40, 50 years ago. 
the machines are smarter today. They are, of course, faster, much faster, much more accurate. You have a little bit of some displays and whatnot on the sewing machines, but the process of making a shirt or a jeans or a jacket is still very similar to what we have seen in like 1980 or 70 or what. And why is that the case? Is it because the technology is not there or is it too expensive? It's, or it's, it's still too easy to produce with workforce power? So I guess there are two reasons for this. One is industrial revolutions happened because we wanted to produce more with the same resources or when you think about lean, which was basically intellectually invented after the Second World War, or it came to place in the Second World War, it was about like, how do I, do, how do I make more out of the same? So how can I improve my organization, my machine product, the usage of raw materials and such? And in the apparel industry, this was not the case. The apparel industry was like a moving, it still is like a moving caravan. You keep the technology as is and you just move to a cheaper country. So whenever you want to improve your cost structure, you look for another country which has even cheaper labor cost and the making stays the same. And that's a trap, of course. If you think about, and some business models also came to an end already. But still, when you think about a t-shirt, a white t-shirt, you would go to the cheapest possible country that you can find and produce it basically in the same way like you did in uh, decades ago. In parallel, and that's the second part of what you see in the apparel industry, you see that uh, there's a high complexity rise in terms of the customer's demand. And also Amazon has trained us a lot in impatience. So you basically cannot wait for things any longer. So you want to have high complexity to express yourself, which on now the TikTok is a boost for that. And you want to have things fast. So that's not working when you produce a T-shirt somewhere in Myanmar or in Kenya or whatever, put it on a boat and it takes weeks to actually reach the market. That's not working anymore. So there are these two phenomenons in our industry. One is producing in the cheapest possible areas. And the other one is producing nearshoring, like putting things closer to the market again. And there you need more technology because you want to stay anyway profitable. So you have to upgrade your machine park. So they, these are two things that happen in parallel nowadays. But still the majority produced in low wage countries. This is a great segue for my question because at the very beginning, you already talked about smart factory. And I would like to ask you what has been the reason or your motivation, your driver to think about a smart factory when you had that offer to go to Izmir in that production plant, you could have said, I go there and I will just continue how they work. It's working out right now. So why did you think at that time about new technologies, about new ways, how to improve that production? Yes. So there are again, two things here. One was this course, this masterclass that I did on Smart Factory in 2014, led me also to visit the Siemens factory in Hamburg, which is a fantastic example of industry 4.0 in practice. They measure the mistakes in parts per million. So you have all the Zig Sigma and Lean and you have everything that you want. You have all the digital transparency, 100% real-time algorithms on predicting the future. This is just great, a masterpiece to look at it. And then I compared this when I listened three days about the future of manufacturing, the digital twin concept and all this technology, real-time data, then I compared this with our legacy industry. Like you talk in the apparel industry, you talk about the quality mistakes from last week, last month, yesterday. You have uh, issues with the supply chain. You have issues with qualities of raw material like fabric mistakes and such. 
uh, people are absent and you only understand this in the morning. You have different skill sets of people. You have lots of mistakes happening. Right first time quota, not high enough. So when I compared these two industries, then I thought, okay, if there's a chance for me to actually prove that this is growing then with this factory, because Izmir at that time, the Hugo Boss factory was a masterpiece in lean. They did things very well. What they would do, they would do very well. But if you would, for example, say like, okay, these are five lines in suit making and I need more waistcoats, then they would tell you like, oh yeah, let's make a project and ask me in three months because then we have made our mind up and then we have an idea about how to make waistcoats in this line or we build a new line or whatever. We are not sacrificing the efficiency gains here because we want to keep everything as is and improve it in lean as much as possible. When I thought about the upcoming trends that McKinsey was predicting in terms of complexity in the apparel industry, and then the technology that I had seen in other industries like the electronic industry from and the car manufacturing industry, and putting all this together in this factory in Izmir, I thought this is never going to fly for the next years to come. This is not going to work because there's always a cheaper country to produce commodities, no matter the quality of the commodity. But if it is, something is standardized, then you look for the cheapest way to produce it. And in our industry, you just pack your bags and put all the machines in a truck and you move into the next country. It's not like an investment in car manufacturing where you've spent like a billion dollars for a plant. So I thought, okay, this, is, this factory is not going to be relevant in five years' time if we continue improving what we do now. And that is a very unpleasant feeling when you start something, and it is even more complicated to explain to people that are very proud about what they have achieved in the last 15 years. So I thought, okay, we have to change. The technology, the, the intellectual framework is there, and the people just don't know yet. So here's the challenge. And what about the Hugo Boss management? Was it a proof of concept at your factory and they said, Joachim, do what you want, but improve the smartness of our factory? Or was it a general initiative for all their factories? No, it was not. It was far away from that. Again, I went to see this factory in Izmir, which I anyway knew for, for, since the beginning. And then I talked to my board member that I was re reporting to and said, okay, listen, I have this idea about smart factory industry 4.0 and we want to do this and that. And then he said, Dear Mr. Hench, which always was a bad starting point when he would start with Dear Mr. Hench. He said, if you deliver on time and in quality and in cost, and you still have intellectual capacity and time to do something else, I will not stop you. And I took this as a go, <laughs> as, as, say, as open as I was at that time. I took this as a go and said, okay, yeah, cool. Challenge accepted. So let's work on this. So... To be honest, when I started this journey, even at that time, my boss would think like, I'm crazy. This guy is crazy because he's doing something that is not, people don't do this in our industry. People don't talk about smart factory in the apparel industry. They go for the next cheaper country and just continue doing what they do. So I had not many people who would really understand what I want to do. And I had not many people who would support this, but I was 2000 kilometers away from the headquarter. And I said in the beginning, I was not plant manager, I was managing director. So I was responsible for the whole PNL. So I could decide where I put my investments in and my eggs in. And therefore, as long as I would deliver something in cost quality and time, people would give me the freedom. And that was a carte blanche for sure to do such thing. But this was an absolute enabler. And I see this many times that uh, people struggle with getting the space to change. I see you smiling when you talk about the topics. I like that. Yes. You're very passionate about it. 
I could talk. We don't have the time here, but I could write a book about this. Great to see. So let's go into it. Take us on the journey you went to that production plant. We already understood how the production plant looked beforehand, old-fashioned manual processes, and then you implemented the first technologies and measures, which we call yeah, smart factory technologies, for example. What has it been about? What did you start to implement? So the first thing that I understood from this masterclass was that if you have no plan, then it's going to be very painful because you will make lots of investments in something that you don't understand and that the people will not understand and therefore not support. So I thought like I need a plan that everyone can say yes to. And that is especially complicated if you do something that people have no clue about. So the first thing that I did was I started, I made a very simple sketch and it, I still have it on my iPad at that time, which was basically like a pyramid. And I said, we are going to create a smart factory here. In the next three years, we are going to concentrate on yearly targets that have a logical step uh, one after the other. And I'm going to explain this in a minute. And that will be our mantra for the next three years. And I will not talk about anything other than this pyramid of topics. So I understood I have to make it crystal clear. I have to make it easy to understand. And I have to make it in, how can I say, there must be a win for everyone in it, not just for the management or the company or whatsoever. It must be convincing. It must be easy to understand. And it must be something that is doable. So I came with this idea and I did an offsite meeting two days and I um, made some, some preparations with the team, with the top management meeting. And it was very much about how to create a smart factory. And this was the first time for them to think and to dive into this topic. And so, so they had lots and lots of preparation for weeks time to prepare. And then we had this two days workshop. And with these ideas that we created, we created the budget for 2016, which was the first initial budget to create a smart factory. At that time, I had the first, like out of these 15 managers, I would say I catched five. The others were thinking like, okay, mm, let's see what this new guy is, is bringing, you know. But the, I catch a couple of them. They said, mm, yeah, wow, this is kind of intriguing. This is interesting. And that is ultimately how you make this also when, when you think about Smart Factory. If you think about so many people, you want to have one after the other. You have to create momentum. And that's what I understood. So we started to chop this Smart Factory journey into yearly targets. And we said, okay, we are going to work in the first year we are going to invest in the digital twin of this organization. Whatever we can see and touch and feel here in this physical organization, we are going to build a copy of it in the digital. So basically, we are going to manage two factories, ultimately. We are going to manage two factories. One is a digital, the other one is a physical. So in the first year, we put all our investment and focus into how do we create digital copies of four layers, the people, the products, the processes, and the machines. And whenever we would look into these investments, we would only and consistently look into digitizing these four layers. Then the next step was to identify what is digital already. You have an ERP system, you have an MES system maybe, or you have, uh, I don't know, quality management systems, ordering systems, you have lots and lots of stuff already. And we and defined the gaps and we defined the investments according to these gaps. So that in the first year, we would only bring up a digital twin. In the second year, we would think about automation and robotics, meaning like how can we standardize as many things to automize them so that we can upgrade the blue colors, the workers, and also the white colors with skills for future needs. If you have no time because you're doing standardized jobs, 
then you cannot learn anything that's complicated. So the second year was automation and robotics, digital robots and physical robots. And the third year was about AI, which would mean like if you have built digital copies in the first year, if you have started collecting information in the second year, then in the third year, you can start digging into this information. You have a data lake and then you can start making sense of it, put algorithms on top of it and then start looking into the future. That is what ultimately a smart factory then is. Understanding your digital twin, creating so many informations as, that you have as possible, and then making sense out of this with algorithms that give you a better management opportunity, so to say. Crazy. So when I summarize that, you have three steps. So the first one is digital twin of four layers. Yeah, people, products, process, and machines. The second process is building automation and robotics. And the third one was AI. And there was also another workflow that I learned from the Siemens factory, which was connect, collect, process, predict. Connect is the first year, connecting everything that you can think about. Collect means collecting information as many as you can get. Process means understanding what these informations tell you. And predict is putting algorithms on top of this. So to say, like, now I know so much so that I can predict what's going to happen next week or next month or next day. Okay, get it. So once again, it sounds like a big project. You have three steps. First of all, you go in the production factory and you implement digital twins at different layers. Then you bring automation in. And at the end, you use all that data to build AI models and improve the whole thing, processes and so on. That sounds like a very, very big challenge. And I find it very hard, or I can imagine that it's very hard to take everybody along. You already talked at the beginning that you needed that mantra to take your managers, your direct reports along. But if we think about the whole plant, there are thousands of workers, as you said, working there. How did you take them along and say them basically, hey, they will change a lot of stuff, but it will be positive for you? Exactly. As I said in the beginning, if you have a story that creates value for these people, then they will jump, they will run with you. So when we were thinking about the technical investments in the 2016 journey in the first year, then we thought like, what is of value for these people? How can we make them understand a digital twin? And what is of value for these people? And the funny thing was, we thought about like, what is value for blue colors? And there were a couple of things that they always wanted. For example, they had a bonus system that would determine their monthly salary in different points. So every month when the salary was different, they would go into HR department saying like, how can you explain me, please, my paycheck? Why is my salary this time, this month, this way? So that was one information. They would manually, physically go there. The second was they wanted to understand the transportation, everything about transportation, like where is my bus, when it is coming, where is it going and whatsoever. So transportation. The third thing was, funny enough, was they wanted to understand what is the monthly meal plan? What are we going to eat next Wednesday at lunch? Because we have like big, like we have 4,000 people, so you have big canteen and what's that. They wanted to have the meal plan. And the last thing was they were interested in who has birthday or who has a celebration in the line or in the group and whatsoever. So we installed... That was kind of framing the people, you know, towards this or preparing the people for tra digital transformation. So we bought eight touchscreens, huge ones at that time, quite expensive, huge ones, and put them into strategic positions like in the canteen and the locker rooms and entry and whatsoever. And so the people would go with their cards. They would have their, their card and they would just touch the card and they would get their personal terminal and personal informations. 
Like, what's my paycheck? What's the meal plan? What's my transportation? What's my bus? Where is it going? Where is it leaving? And whatnot. Who has birthday in my line and whatnot. So the people talk a lot about gamification and this is basically it, you know. So you combine valid information and again saying valid for this person, not valid for the manager or the engineer or whatever, valid for this end consumer of this, customer of this information. And you gamify it in a way that it is fun for them to use it. And off you see people all of a sudden going to, de to these screens and looking into data. So we prepared them to find digital informations in digital spaces that otherwise they would run somewhere to a manual board, into the HR office or whatever. That was a kind of framing them for the next step. Then we started to install dashboards in the like screens, big screens in terms of the performance data and such, because for them also, they want, it is important to understand what's my bonus for this week or this month or whatever. So if you can see, if people can literally see this, That's interesting. That's something that is of value for these people. And then came the big boost. We bought 1,600 tablet PCs and all Wi-Fi and attached them to their machines and said, okay, this is going to be your digital twin. So your machine breaks. You want to call the mechanic. In the old way, I call the supervisor. The supervisor calls the team leader. The team leader calls the mechanic. The mechanic comes like 30 minutes later. My daily bonus is gone as an operator because the machine is down and whatnot. Now. You have the touch screen, you touch, make one button, you touch and say, my machine is broken. It says what's broken, the needle is broken. Okay, the next, dis the automatic dispatcher says, the next mechanic will come in, say, eight minutes, like Uber. That is something that people immediately understand that is of value for them. Immediately, they see, like, this is before, this is after. I only want after, you know, I only want this. There were people attaching labels. You push a button, a raw material warehouse gets a notice. Five minutes later, you have your labels and you have your supply of material again. I want to know my 10 days performance and my quality level because it's part again of my salary. So I just push a button and I see some donuts about my trends and whatsoever. I don't understand my workmanship right now, what I have to do. So I go into a video library and watch a video about what I have. So we created value for them and that created motivation. That is how we made it. Understand. So when I summarize it, you gave them access as well. So access to that new technologies, they can work with it and then they feel the impact. They have that value like you describe. In our preparation talk, you had one example, which I found very great as well. And it is more about participation probably. You talked about the factory layout. So how is the layout within the plant? And you let the workers participate, how that will change, right? Can you talk about that? This is the masterpiece, <laughs> so to say. I was just talking about the introduction. By the way, just before I explain this, we did the same for the leaders. Like, for example, supervisors would look for repair pieces and searching for completing orders, shipments and whatnot. So if you have a digital twin of your products and in the layout, you know where your stuff is. So they saved one hour per day in searching stuff. We had quality managers that would look into numbers. They had real-time numbers, so they would see, like, there's a problem on the collar right now in line five. I'm going there and not one day later complain about what happened. Coming to this participation, when you come into stage three, which means like AI, then you can start making simulations about your layout. Like, what is the optimal layout for the product to come? And we implemented, for sure, like two, three times the complexity in women's wear uh, than before this time. And that means that you have to change the layout accordingly every whatever day sometimes. 
So we made simulations about how the layout would optimally look like, and we put all the machines on wheels. And then we would explain the new layout to the blue colors, and by time, they would understand this. So when you have a shift change, then this means like someone knows, okay, this is how the layout shift A looks and shift B. So when the people, the blue colors from shift B come, they change the layout by themselves. They pl unplug the machines because they are on wheels anyway. They unplug the machines and put them into the right order. And in the beginning, this took like 40 minutes. And when I left, it was about eight. And the target was like five. So it's crazy to see how much you can do with blue colors if you enable them with information and training. And that was, is just one example. There are so many others, but it's one probably very, um, yeah, it's kind of dramatic because blue colors change the layout and not engineers or mechanics or whatnot. Joachim, let's take a look into the future. What is your vision how a factory, for example, that factory in Izmir will look like 10 years from now? What will change on top of your changes? Yes. So the most uh, significant change that we have to think about nowadays is climate change. There's no way that people can deny this and that we can, I mean, still people ignore this, but it's something else. So when we think about manufacturing, then the use of the means, meaning what I just said before, the four layers, like how do you use machines and your resources and your people? How do you only produce what is actually needed and sold and not put on landfill because it was overproduction or whatsoever? That is one of the big topics that I see in the years to come. There will be a very close connection between the end consumer market and the manufacturing. Today, it's very much, our industry is very much on assumptions. Google has a much better assumption about what I'm going to search for than the apparel industry has about what people will want to buy in the next months or years to come or seasons to come. So we will see a world where manufacturing is getting closer to the end consumer, to the, the market demands, and that will require more automation because the complexity will rise. So you have smaller orders, but more model changeovers, and that is only possible if you have a full digital twin to handle this complexity and at the same time having super capable people that do the specialties and very automated lines to do the standard jobs. That is ultimately also Industry 5.0 is talking about, like thinking about how can I make companies participate more in the shaping of societies, the well-being of the workers and the well-being of nature, of the environment, using energy more wisely, using the raw materials more wisely, talking about circular economy. So that's how factories will look like in 10 years. I'm pretty sure about this because there's no way that you can just continue doing this as you do. Okay. If we focus on the workers for one more second, in one of the last episodes, I talked with Engin Bacon. He is a partner at Arthur Lee Little. This is an innovation consulting firm. And I asked him if we will see more or less workers in the factory of tomorrow. So the question to you as well, how will workers work or be in the factories of tomorrow? Will we see more or less? What is your opinion? Yes. So first up, although it sounds strange, but we have a labor shortage. Even though sometimes people think like robots are coming and they are going to replace, we have a labor shortage. And the reason for this is because our world is getting more complicated. So we are not, and to produce complicated stuff, you need more people being involved. 
This is basically the same like when the personal computer was introduced and people were uh, like assistants and the secretaries, they were all scared of losing their jobs because the boss can now make the own, their own schedule and write their own emails and messages. And the opposite happened. I mean, I don't see a world now of, of companies without assistants. So the same applies to manufacturing. We will see a lot of people still in manufacturing, but in different jobs, certainly in different areas. Great. I find that a great outlook. And Engen Bacon, he said the same. And I find it astonishing, and, but a great outlook, as I said. Joachim, now let's focus on your current role, what you are doing with Industry 5.0. So you left Hugo Boss at a point and then said you will focus on a new tip topic for you, which is Industry 5.0. You already touched some areas like sustainability. What are you doing currently and what is Industry 5.0 about? Yes. So I left in 2020 and I was thinking like, what am I going to do next? And actually I fulfilled my dream of my early 20s to be independent, you know, to not being employed, but start to work independently as an entrepreneur. So I opened my own consulting firm and mentoring firm. And now what I do is I help organizations really all around the world on their industry 4.0 journey first, which means like, how do I digitize? I talked about this first step of the digital transformation, which is like digitizing, creating this digital twin. That is what I do a lot right now, very frequently in South Asia, also like Sri Lanka and other countries so that they build their digital twin of their organizations. And then they can start digging into this data to make create more value out of this. Industry 5.0 drives me very much because I'm thinking about our industry And people say like, this is the second most polluting industry on this planet after um, oil and gas production. And that is just terrible if you think about this, because we create beautiful products and that we are so polluting and so unsustainable is cannot be the future. So my thought on industry 5.0, it's a very nice concept coming from the European Union, is like, how can you turn industrial production into something so meaningful and so circular that You can have an infinite economical growth still without risking running out of resources or risking uh, damaging this earth furthermore. And that is only possible with technology, because when you think about circular, for example, I'll give you one example of Adidas. They are in their Futurecraft laboratory. They created a shoe that is made of one material only. So you wear this shoe. This shoe is 3D printed and knitted. You wear this shoe and when it comes back, it gets uh, scrapped and melted again and you can spin new yarn of it. So the only thing that you inject into this is energy. It's a circular product. You can certainly create and 3D print a new product out of the raw material like two years later when you return it and it's completely circular in this raw material circle. So when we think about the apparel industry and industry 5.0, then the question is how can you create an ecosystem that is digitally and technically so enhanced or like added that you have exactly that. You create less new material and more of what is currently already available or in the market going more circular and doing this in a way that nevertheless people will find jobs. So the, the answer cannot be deindustrialization. You know, sometimes people say like we are 8 billion people anyway, too many. So we have to go back and we cannot overconsume more. I'm not buying this actually, because I think this is unrealistic. We cannot tell all these developing countries, sorry, guys, there's no space for you. This is all done for the developed countries. They have their life and you have to stay where you are. So there will be an intrinsic motivation of countries and industries to rise. 
and to create more value. The question is, how can you do this in a way of not consuming too much energy and new resources? And how do you create more well-being for everyone to participate in this game? And these are the two factors, like the societal factor, which is the employee and the consumer, and the economic and the environmental factor, which is about the use of the means. That's what drives me very much and how to do this with, run this with technology. Yeah, it's a big and very interesting topic. I think that could be something for a second episode, talking about Industry 5.0. I find it super important that people like you are caring about that and we are going the next step from industry 4.0 to 5.0 and think more about sustainability as well. In a nutshell, I think we are right now talking a lot about being climate neutral, especially nowadays where we have the climate crisis and additional the gas problems, for example, this is getting more and more important. As a society, we can just be climate neutral if our industry, the manufacturing is climate neutral as well. Are you optimistic that we can do it or how do you think about it? Well, actually, the unpleasant story of us is that we are intellectually capable to understand everything, but we only move if we have a crisis. And therefore, I think this crisis that we have in Europe right now with regards to the Ukraine and, and Russia war and the shortages and the rising prices of gas and oil will make us move faster towards sustainability than any sustainability conference could ever make us. We are just responsive people. We even, the smarter we are, we only move when we must. And, and that's one, one thing that I see in, in developing countries more than in developed countries, because developing countries are still having this hunger of rise. Developed countries, they want to typically save and maintain their status. That's not happening right now. It's actually an attack on this in Europe with these rising prices, with people even being scared that Germany is deindustrialization, which I absolutely don't believe. I believe that now people have heard the call and they have ultimately the necessity actually to change their business model. So I'm optimistic, but it's not without pain, unfortunately. Okay, so let's be optimistic. And coming to my last question, which is a little bit of open question here. We already touched some topics which are going into it. Imagine that I will be pushed into a role of a CIO of a manufacturing company. And this is pretty old-fashioned still. So there is EIP system in place, but this is everything about digitalization. Every other process is very manual and you have old-fashioned systems and processes in place. And then I come to you and ask you about one question. So what should I do today to push my company as a CIO into the future-proof direction? What should I do today? What is your advice? Yeah. So the first is uh, something that I just did before this podcast here, which is an honest diagnostic. Forget about pride and forget about your systems and whatever you have done. You just understand who you are compared to other industries and compared to the market. That is one of the most important first steps you want to do is really to look into not what is available on the market in terms of technology, but who are you right now and who you want to become. And what's the gap in between? Because then you will understand like this technology is super fancy and I would love to have it, but it's not creating a value. It's just digital stuff. And I see too many initiatives that are detached from the value of that, that it should create. And so that would be certainly something that the CIO cannot do alone. Work a lot with the HR department, understanding what people do, people in the equation. And with the marketing and merchandising department in terms of what kind of customer will we have and what's the market 
how does the market look like in five years? And only then you start thinking about what is then the right initiative in terms of change, technology, processes. Then you make a deadly series investment plan, talk numbers, that clear. But this, like being attracted by technology today is so easy. Everyone wants to become the next SpaceX. And it's just nonsense when we think about the value creation for a factory. That should certainly start with an assessment. That's basically also what I do when I start with clients. Joachim, it was a pleasure to talk with you. Very, very inspiring. So thanks a lot for being on the podcast and hope to see you in one of the next episodes as well. And then we talk about sustainability and industry 5.0 a little bit more. Thanks a lot. Why not? Thank you, Benjamin. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you for listening. And we hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and resources at operationsone.com. This episode is brought to you by Operations One. Operations One is the leading platform to bring operations to a new level of excellence. By supporting frontline operations from planning to execution to analytics, companies benefit from an empowered workforce, increased operational excellence, and future-proof operations. Visit operationsone.com for more information.